Good evening. Tonight's lecture is entitled Communism, Fascism, and the Destruction of European Jewry. As I mentioned in promoting this class over Shabbos afternoon, that I once heard many years ago that the Nazism destroyed the body of the Jewish people and communism destroyed the soul of the Jewish people. But to truly understand what happened to European Jewry and how the one-two punch of Nazism and communism ended a thousand years of vibrant Jewish life, particularly in Eastern Europe, we have to go back to World War I. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was assassinated at Sarajevo by a Serbian nationalist. One month later, on July 28th, after its humiliating demands were refused, Austria-Hungary <coughs> declared war on Serbia. Other declarations of war quickly followed, and soon every major power in Europe was in the war. On one side were the Allies, chiefly France, Britain, Russia, Italy, and several years later, the United States of America. On the other side were the Central Powers, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, a.k.a. Turkey Plus. World War I, which lasted four years, was an incredibly destructive war, which more than 10 million people died, another 20 million people were wounded. This was largely because by the time of World War I, many um, weapons were perfected, such as machine guns, heavy artillery, so that the numbers of dead increased tremendously. The war also proved extremely damaging for the communities of Eastern Europe. In the war front, the war in Eastern Europe, the Eastern Front of the war was in an area where four million Jews lived. Right? So if a World War I is being fought in your backyard and millions of Jews are in the crossfire, many, many Jews lost their means of living. Russia itself expelled 600,000 Jews during the war. They accused the Tsar at the time, accused them of siding with the, uh, the enemy. And worldwide Jewry was forced to have major fundraisers. The first time actually American Jewry started heavily funding European Jewry was in World War I because European Jewry became destitute during the war. They had no way of making a living. It also broke down traditional communities and paved the way <coughs> for a further expansion of Marxist, socialist, and other revolutionary ideas. Moreover, in World War I, 1.5 million Jews fought in the war. The largest contingent of Jews were in the Russian army, um, but the French army, the Austrian army, the German army, and later the armed forces of the United States also had large amounts of Jews, and 140,000 Jews died in World War I. There's a famous story um, on the, on the Austrian-Russian front that there were two soldiers, one was an Austrian and one was a Russian, and I don't know it was the Russian or the Austrian, but one of them had, they were in hand-to-hand combat, and one had knocked down his opponent, and he was about to take his bayonet from his rifle and kill the opposing soldier, and the soldier who was about to be killed was a Jew. And he screamed at the top of his lungs, Shema Yisrael! And the opposing soldier finished the Pasuk, Hashem Lokeinu, Hashem Echad, he put down his gun and he let the soldier go. Right? There were Jews fighting against Jews in World War I. There were Jews on the sides of the Austrian 
there are Jews on the sides of the Russians. Remarkably, World War I, which really set the stage for the Holocaust, we'll see, escalated <coughs> on, on August the 1st. Because Austria-Hungary declared war on, Ser- on Serbia on July the 28th, 1914. You would not have had World War I. <laughs> but on August the 1st, 1914, Germany declared war on Russia. And then we had World War I. August the 1st, 1914, was Tisha And it's not surprising that Tisha which was the days which the first and second temple were destroyed. It was the day when the, Jew, the Jews of Spain were, were completely um, sent out in expulsion. And that is the same day which World War I, which sets into motion World War II, and hence the Holocaust, and hence the Communist Revolution, fell on Tisha World War I triggered a, uh, uh, triggered a chain reaction. First, it triggered the Bolshevik-Russian Revolution, which we'll discuss shortly. And it also allowed the Nazi party in Germany to become empowered. Hitler would never have had an opportunity to be president and then chancellor, ch- chancellor and then president of Germany if it wouldn't have been World War I. World War I impoverished Germany, embarrassed Germany. The Versailles Treaty made Germany indebted and gave up wep- uh, many of their uh, possessions. And the Germans felt that they were stabbed in the back. Now, remarkably, World War I was caused by the German military and nobility and encouraged by the Lutheran pastors who gave it moral standing in Germany, Germany, which was the most powerful of the central powers, to fight in World War I. But who was blamed for World War I? The the populace who had almost nothing to do with the war, the the classic scapegoat, the Jews became blamed in Germany for World War I. They, were, they must have been stabbed in the back. Right? Germany was stabbed in the back. Who would stab us in the back? Would it be our military? Would it be the nobility? Would it be the Lutheran pastors? It must have been the Jews. People who had absolutely no discretion, no decision making in the war itself. World War I also most definitely caused the Communist Revolution. While the Tsarist government did well originally against Austria-Hungary, when the Germans expanded onto the Eastern Front, the the Russian army collapsed. And they had heavy losses, because after many years of corruption with the Tsarist government, um, there was a rebellion already in 1905 during the Russo-Japanese War, the the Russian army was ill-prepared to fight against the Germans. And the Germans routed the Russians. And as Russia has having heavy losses, there ended up being two revolutions. There was a February or March revolution and an October-November revolution. Originally, in February-March, the revolution was taken was by socialists and liberal parties, but they made a, a terrible mistake. The socialists and liberal parties who, who took did the February revolution kept Russia in the war. And as Russia continues in the war, the losses keep mounting and mounting, and they become less and less popular. There were food shortages. It didn't end the war. And in October, November, after a failed attempt to in the summer, the communists, 300 communists, 300 communists took over a country of 150 million people with the communist revolution. Of course, the Bolshevik victory, ultimately in the Civil War in 1921, led to the creation of the USSR, which would remain in power until its collapse in 1989, 1990. Now, the motto of the Communist Party, 
was from each according to his ability to each according to his need. This, each according to his ability, each according to his need, proved very appealing to the Jews, especially liberal-minded Jews, who were the most oppressed, we've discussed this previously, the most oppressed, legally oppressed, physically oppressed, uh, um, verbally abused people in Russia were the Jews. And here the communists promised equality to all. All will be equal to the law. And there will be no more anti-Semitic laws and no more financial laws and, and we, won't, we won't be put down by society. And it had, of course, a, a Tikkun Olam appeal. We'll save the world. And the big, bad capitalists will occupy Russia. And we'll save the world. We'll occupy Russia. Well, this approved uh, appealing to Jews. Now, the interesting thing is there were actually very few Jews who were involved with the Bolsheviks. But the, amongst those very few Jews many of them rose to the top. It didn't appeal to the masses. The Bund, the socialists, were a mass movement amongst the Jews. The communist movement was not. But of the few Jews who were in there, some of the heads of the Communist Party, or the Politburo, would be Jews. So on the eve of the February Revolution, the Bolshevik Party, on the eve of the February Revolution, we're talking about a country of 150 million people in 1917, there were 10,000 Bolshevik members in the February 1917. Of the 10,000 members, 364 were Jews. Okay? But amongst those 364 Jews was Grigory Zinoviev, who was Lenin's deputy, Moishi Oritsky, Grigory all the Russians, please forgive my pronunciation. I'm a Yankee. Grigory Sokolov. Yakov Swerdlov, who was the first head of the Soviet state, Leon Trotsky, who we talk about in depth, Adolf Yafi was a Crimean Karite who actually negotiated and signed the Brest-Litvast Treaty, which pulled Russia out of the war, and Leif Kamenov, whose father was Jewish, mother was not, but during Lenin's illness, Kamenov was actually the acting council of people's commissars and the Politburo chairman. Of the five full voting members of 19 of the first Politburo, two of them were Jews, Trotsky and Kamenov, and of the three non-voting members, Zinoviev was one of the three. So three of the eight first Politburo were, were Jews. According to the 1922 census, there were already 20,000 Jewish Bolsheviks, compromising 5.21% of the total. Now, if the, if the subsequent proportion of Jews rose, it's only because the Jews, of course, are very articulate and politically engaged people. The Bolsheviks are in power. The Jews went to the Bolsheviks. But it was not only because of that, because during the Civil War, during the Russian Civil War, the Jews were caught in the crossfire between the Reds and the Whites. And the most vicious people against the Jews were the Whites, people on the side of the Tsar and the Ukrainian nationalists. Whereas the Red Army, particularly because Trotsky was the head of it, was not that compassionate to the Jews, but was better to the Jews. So many Jews look at the White Army and the Ukrainian nationalists as they were murdering Jews. They killed up to 200,000 Jews in the Ukraine and White Russia. And the Red Army were much more fair to the Jews. The Bolsheviks were not killing the Jews. So many more Jews bought into the Bolshevik party. Amongst these few Jewish communists, however, there was a rabid feeling of anti-religion. And that when the Jewish 
movement in the part of the Ivetskaya started, these Jews looked at religion as the opiate of the masses, to quote Marx. And they did their best, these Jewish communists did their best to eradicate every fiber, every ounce of Yiddishkeit from the Jews of Russia. Right? The vast majority of Jews of Russia were still at the time observant. It wasn't at the beginning of the 19th century before the Haskalah. There were already many Jews who were caught up in, in secular Zionism and Yiddish movements and the Bund, which we'll discuss in a minute, and all other kinds of isms out there. But there were the, the villages and the shtetls, go back to the fiddle in the roof, they were all religious Jews. Right? And the Ivetska did everything to pull out every bit of Yiddishkeit out of these Jews. Listen, this is in October 1918. Here's a piece from the It's called, entitled, The Liquidation of Bourgeoisie Institutions. The Jewish community has hitherto been dominated by members of the property class who want to keep the masses in the dark by superimposing a Hebrew culture upon them. While the upper classes have been sending their children to public schools, they have provided only dark primary schools, dark primary schools, i.e. yeshivas, Jewish dairy schools, beisakos, and synagogues to the offsprings of the proletariat, in which nothing but nonsense is taught. In the struggle against the authorized Jewish community, no compromise can be made with the bourgeoisie. The first head of the Vetsko is a person by the name of Simon Demanstein, who took over in January 1918. This Simon went to a Chabad yeshiva in his youth, then learned in Tells and Slobodka yeshivas, was an ordained rabbi, and he was the leader of uprooting religion throughout um, Europe. This, he, he was a heavy supporter of, of, of Stalin. He was the person who founded the Jewish uh, settlement in Siberia. He edited the Yiddish newspaper, Der Emes, The Truth, and like many or most of the heads of, of the communists, and particularly the Jewish communists, he was murdered by Stalin in 1938. Thus, though, under the Vetska and communism, the Jews of Russia were starved of their heritage, resulting in a huge Jewish population that is incredibly ignorant of their Judaism, and which, of course, has repercussions to our very day. If you meet a Russian Jew, with very few exceptions, that let alone not believing in the Torah, very, most of them have a problem with God, as I mentioned, they were raised in an atheistic, antagonistic country towards religion, and certainly against Judaism in particular. And as mentioned, the Jews, Jewish masses were, were, were slaughtered in, in the Civil War itself. Now, when Lenin died in 1924, there was a power struggle for the future of the Communist Party in Russia. And the two main players in this power struggle was a Jewish boy named Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin. Now, they had a basic disagreement on the nature of communism. Simply speaking, Stalin, Stalin viewed the, the goal of the Russian communist state as focus, focusing on Russia. Let's make Russia into a communist state and had a nationalistic viewpoint. Whereas Trotsky views himself as an internationalist. To Trotsky, Russia was not an entity. There should be one big kumbaya world where it's all communist. And all the workers of the world will unite together. And it shouldn't be that we're Russian. We're all international. We're people. There's no such thing as Russia. We'll be first, but it has to spread to the whole world. Stalin won. 
And he won through a lot of manipulations, including using Trotsky's background as a Jew to his advantage. And he first ousted Trotsky as a commissar of war, then he expelled him from the party, and finally in 1929 he deported him from Russia. He eventually sent agents to Mexico City in 1940 where he assassinated Trotsky. But before that, in 1935, Trotsky started his Great Purges. And in the Great Purges, we wiped out most of, I remember Jeff Stern who lived here, he told me his wife, her, her parents' family was, were high in the Communist Party. And she said that her parents told her that in her cl- their class, I think her mother's class in Russia, that within two years, all of her friends were orphans. That all their parents were having, they were having limousines, the equivalent of the, the highest echelons of Russian lifestyle. They were the heads of the Communist Party, and they were all orphans within two years. Stalin wiped out many of the old Bolsheviks, and most of the Jews were stamped out of the military, out of the political heads of, of the country. And the most famous of these was Trotsky, which I want to discuss in a minute, because it's interesting. But unbelievably, when Stalin first came to power, it was a, he had something called a troika. And the two people who joined in the troika were two Jews, Leib Kamenev and Gregory Zinoviev. Both of them were murdered by Stalin as well. Officially, anti-Semitism was illegal in the Soviet Union, yet Stalin became more and more paranoid of the Jews. His daughter, Svetlana, who was his only daughter, who actually in 1967 um, claimed asylum and, and died in America, I think, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, she claimed that Stalin, because of his paranoia of Trotsky, ended up having a racial hatred of all Jews. This is despite the fact that five of his eight grandchildren, Stalin's eight grandchildren were Jews, we didn't want to see, and his brother-in-law was a Jew, he became more and more of a rabid anti-Semite, so much so that in the doctor's plot, there are historians who are now claiming that he actually had a plan to kill the remainder of Russian Jewry, first send them to Siberia, and then kill them. Here is the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev, who, was in, who took over from Stalin. And he's actually talking about, I didn't put this down, he's talking about post-World War II. This is source number one. A hostile attitude towards the Jewish nation was a major shortcoming of Stalin's. In his speeches and writings, as a leader and a uh, theoretician, there wasn't even a hint of this. God forbid that anyone asserts that a statement by him smacked of anti-Semitism. Outwardly, everything looked correct and proper. But in his inner circle, when he had occasion to speak about some Jewish person, he also always used an emphatically distorted pronunciation. This was the way a backward people lacking in political consciousness would express themselves in daily life. People with a contemptuous attitude towards Jews. They would deliberately mangle the, Jewish, the Russian language, putting it on a Jewish accent or imitating certain negative characteristics attributed to Jews. Stalin loved to do this and it became one of his characteristic traits. He would mock the Jews. He would imitate the Jews. Again, he became, as time went on, more and more anti-Semitic. I mean, the, if, you, if, if anyone wants to read some of the, the recent biographies that came out of it, they're fascinating. Right? And really how the doctor's plot, how he's planning to kill the remainder of the Soviet Jewry, and he was most probably assassinated, I think, today. He died very mysteriously as the doctor's plot was unfold, unfolding. Stalin mysteriously died 
Some feel that it was the head of the, 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 the NKAVD, who himself was on Stalin's hit list, who killed him. Now, I want to discuss Trotsky, and I'll tell you why. Because Trotsky, not only was he the most powerful Jewish communist, but his story and his ending is so emblematic of the, of the communists and the Jews. Leon Trotsky was born on November 7, 1879, with a name, not Leon Trotsky, but Lev Davidovich Bronstein. He changed his name to avoid being known as a Jew. Briefly speaking, Trotsky was a brilliant intellectual and political thinker. He rose to the number two position under Lenin. He was the head and chief of the, of the Red Army and really spearheaded the, so, the, the Bolshevik victory in the Civil War. At the age of seven, Bronstein, Trotsky, he went to Cheder in a nearby village and learned the way they did in Cheder. He would say Hebrew words and then touch it into Yiddish. And that's how Trotsky learned. His family was not observant Jews. They were not strictly observant. However, they celebrated the holidays and they would go to <coughs> their nearby villages. Now, when Trotsky was nine years old, he went to the, the, the main center of Haskalah, as I mentioned a couple lectures ago, to Odessa. And in Odessa, he went to afternoon Jewish school, Talmud Torah, but he gave up his religion in Odessa. Now that he gave up his religion, he became an atheist and looked at Judaism and all religion as a joke. So much so that when his father passed away and he had requested from his son to bury him in Jewish rites in a Jewish cemetery, Trotsky, not only did he not bury him in Jewish rites, he buried him in his own garden without any care for his father, said, thus openly exhibiting his disdain for his Jewish heritage. Now, as mentioned, in Russia, most Jews were not communists. Again, the people who went to the top, they were communists. Of the Communist Party, many of them were Jews. But the average Jew who, was, who had left the capital system were, were socialists. They belonged to the Bund. What was the Bund? The Bund was the Jewish workers' answer to the programs and exploitation. It was a viewpoint of building a social system, but it was heavily Jewish. It had a strong emphasis on Yiddish, although not religious. They were usually anti-religious. And the Bund would have a strong, strong influence on the early Zionists, especially the labor Zionists in Israel. Right? They were not religious. They were usually anti-religious, but they were heavily Jewishly focused with Jewish culture. And they were focused on socialists for Jews. Trotsky hated the Bund. And not only Trotsky, but Lenin hated the Bund. Because the Bund was Jewish focused. And Trotsky was an internationalist. What are you focusing on the Jews for, Trotsky would say? Where are you mint? When there's no thing as Judaism. What are you making Yiddish and Shalom Aleichem and Ash and all of these people? We have to focus on, not even Russia, on being internationalists. And he felt that the Bund was, was a almost insidious organization. And because Trotsky really believed that in Marxism, that religion is the opening of the mass, uh, uh, mass of the people. He wrote six months before his assassination that for 43 years as of my life, I have remained a revolutionary. I shall die a proletarian revolutionary, a Marxist, a dialectical materialist, and consequently an irreconcilable atheist. Okay? Genetically, Trotsky was a Jew, but personally and culturally, he emphatically denied his Jewishness. 
Look at source number two. Now, source number two, by the way, is probably from the foremost expert in Russian history, Professor Emeritus at Harvard, Richard Pipes, in Russia under the Bolshevik regime. He has a son, actually, who's quite famous as well. His name is Daniel Pipes, who is a very uh, pro-Israel, anti-Islamic fundamentalist uh, speaker and uh, well-written as well. So Trotsky, the satanic Bronstein <coughs> of the Russian anti-Semites, because the anti-Semites in Russia are still Trotsky was a shit. <laughs> right? Trotsky may have been the head of the Russian army, but he was a shit nonetheless. If you were an anti-Semite, they, even threw, it, they threw it at him. Was deeply offended when anyone, whenever anyone presumed to call him a Jew. When a visiting Jewish delegation appealed to him to help fellow Jews, he flew into rage. I am not a Jew, but an internationalist. He reacted similarly when re- requested by Rabbi Eisenstadt of Petrograd to allow special flour for Passover matzahs, adding on this occasion that he wanted to know no Jews. At another time, he said that Jews interested him no more than the Bulgarians. Even though he changed his name from Bronstein to Trotsky, however, he was forever identified as a Jew. He was forever a Jew. He can never escape, escape his Judaism. And there's, a, there's a famous line of I mean, Jacob Mays, who was the chief rabbi of Moscow, so he was, went to, to Trotsky to plead for the Jewish people. So Trotsky said to, Trotsky said to this rabbi Mays, he said he doesn't consider himself a Jew. So he said, so Mays retorted back to him, this is very nice. Trotsky's make the revolutions and the Bronstein's pay the price. <laughs> Churchill, Winston Churchill, was actually quoted as saying that Trotsky's contribution to the Red Army and to building Soviet Ro- uh, Russia was so great that he no doubtly should have been the dictator of Russia. But for one thing, he was a Jew. And there is the great irony of it all. Trotsky who abandoned his Judaism, who abandoned his parents, who has spit on the faith of his father, who changed his name, who said he wanted nothing to do with the Jews, was at the end of the day, always a Jew. And today, except for historians and some people who are interested in these things, Trotsky's name is hardly remembered. His, na- <coughs> his ideas have been discarded and discredited. All his, I, all his desires to change the world into a paradise, of course, have been laid to waste. Yet the heritage, the Judaism which he denied, the Judaism which he rejected, right, the heritage felt certain. By the way, he was a, for the same reasons he was very anti-Zionist, Trotsky. He was very he couldn't imagine the Jews going back to Israel being so ethnocentric. Right? All of that is still around. In fact, Judaism today is, at least in Torah Judaism, is having a renaissance. And the most ironic thing of all, that if you go to the West Bank in Israel, to Kfar Tapuach, you can meet Vadim David Axelrod, who is a religious settler, who is the great-grandson of late Leon Trotsky. Here you have a religious Jew who went to Yeshiva, is living in state of Israel. He's one of his only descendants in this world. He actually has six children. <laughs> he is a great-grandson of Leon Trotsky. It's his sons, Sergi's daughter, Yuli's Son, right? And this really should be a lesson to us all. For all of those people who think that Judaism is the opiate of the masses, for the Jews who left behind, you look at how many communists, right? What happened to the Jews in Russia, right? And where today, who, who are the, who, who's still around, right? All the opiate of the masses, the Jew, communism is, 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 is buried. 
right? And they buried a lot of Jews with it. But here you have a great-grandson of Leon Trotsky with six children, right, living in the West Bank as a religious settler in Israel. Now, the fact that they were amongst the heads of the Bolshevik <coughs> party, Jews, gave wind to the greatest canards. And Nazi Germany would constantly be using the Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy to get up, you know, German support for their for their platform. Already in 1924, Dietrich Eckert's pamphlet, Bolshevism, from Moshe to Lenin, which depicted both Moshe and Lenin as being communists and Jews, was a bestseller in, Russia, in Germany. It was followed also by Alfred Rosenberg, who was the head of propaganda, or the heads of propaganda for the, for the German Nazi party, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and Mein Kampf, where Hitler explicitly said in 1924 that the Jews and Bolshevism are connected. Look at this quote, source number three. This is a quote in Hitler's table talk. The heaviest blow which ever struck humanity was Christianity. Bolshevism is Christianity's illegitimate child. Both are inventions of the Jew. Now, the fact that in 1919, most people don't know this, there was a communist revolution in Germany, and the communists overtook, almost overtook Germany. There were two leaders of that communist revolution. One of them was a Jew. Her name was Rosa Luxemburg. They called her Red Rosa. Right? Rosa Luxemburg, the fact that she was Jewish, and the fact that in 1919 there was also a communist revolution in Hungary, led by Bela Kuhn, and Bela's father was Jewish, only added fuel to this fire. The German army <coughs> increasingly looked at Soviet communism as a Jewish conspiracy, and that, had, and that only grew. In 1932, a pamphlet was put out by the German National Association before the Nazis took power, the German National Association for the Military Sciences, describing the Soviet leadership as mostly Jewish, dominating an apathetic and mindless Russian population. Propaganda in 1935 by the Psychological Warfare Laboratory of the German War Ministry described Soviet officials as mostly filthy Jews and called the Red Army soldiers to rise up and kill their Jewish commissars. Look at the next quote, source number four. This is Hitler's speech to the Reichstag justifying Operation Barbarossa. That's, the te- that's when Hitler backstabbed Stalin in 1941 and attacked Russia. This is his speech saying why Germany was going into Russia. For more than two decades, the Jewish Bolshevik regime in Moscow has tried to set fire not merely to Germany, but to all of Europe. The Jewish Bolshevik rulers in Moscow have unservingly undertaken to force their domination upon us and the other European nations, and that is not merely spiritually, but also in terms of military power. Now the time has come to confront the plot of the Anglo-Saxon Jewish warmongers and the equally Jewish rulers of the Bolshevik center in Moscow. This is Hitler's speech, why he's talking in Russia, and this is how Hitler talked. Now discuss Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was born in Austria in 1889, <coughs> and believe it or not, if you look at the, if you look at history's, Hitler's youth, his interaction with Jews were positive. His family doctor, the person who saved his mother, was a Jew. Hitler got an Iron Cross in World War One. The person who gave him the Iron Cross who recommended him was a Jew. 
He was involved in, in selling art. Many of his clients were Jews. Nevertheless, Hitler, Churchill in, in his memoirs, when he talks about Hitler, he said you could talk about Hitler, you could talk to Hitler, and you can have a normal conversation. But if you would mention the word Jew, all of a sudden he became erased. You were talking to a wild man when you mentioned the word, word Jew. Nevertheless, even though Hitler had a depraved hatred of Jews, as we'll see later in the lecture, it wasn't illogical. He had a Weltanschauung. He had a worldview why he hated Jews, which will become clear later on. Hitler was also not insane. He's probably amongst the greatest orators of the past couple hundred years. I mean, who else could literally claim and preach about the beauty of the Aryan race, about blonde and blue. I mean, here you look at Hitler. Ever see the guy? I mean, he's a short guy with a funny mustache, sitting there, you know, he's preaching to a bunch of you. Ever look at the pictures? He's right, they're all blonde and blue. And they're, they're buying it. This little, this little Hitler. But he's a great speaker. You would watch him. Thank you. You watch him, he's a great speaker. He came to power in 1932, but throughout the 1920s, his fortune got more and more uh, powerful, uh, uh, up more and more, particularly because Germany was completely, completely impoverished by the Versailles Treaty. And in 1929, when the when the world went into depression, Germany got hardest hit. And that, when people are desperate for, for money, people buy into demagogues. And Hitler, in the election of 1932, was able to win 37% of the votes. And at first, Hindenburg did not want to put him as Chancellor of Germany, but due to political ineptness, eventually the elderly Hindenburg was, was forced to make Hitler Chancellor of Germany. And he said, we'll keep a close watch on him. We'll lock him under, he'll do nothing. Within the first four months of power, Hitler had set up Dachau and other concentration camps and killed 40,000 of his political opponents, mostly communists. Democratic rights in Weimar Germany were, were suspended. <coughs> Interesting to note, one of the first things they did was burning books. Bringing back Heinrich Heine's statement in the 1820s in Germany, where they burn books, they'll eventually burn people as well. Okay. His dictatorship in place, Hitler now went ahead and bullied Europe. Now, the remarkable thing is that Europe, France, and England could have crushed Hitler early on. Hitler had no army in his first couple of years. He had the SA, which were, which were holding sticks and maybe guns at the best. They had no tanks, they had no planes, but they constantly watched with pacifist eyes. Hitler was recorded numerous times said that France won't move an inch. When push comes to shove, they won't do anything, and he was right. When Hitler went to the Rhineland in 1936, in contradiction to the Versailles Treaty and the Locarno Agreements as well, France did nothing. When, when Hitler forced his way into Austria and caused the Anschluss in 1938, France and England did nothing. And then, perhaps the greatest the greatest traitory, they had, a, they had peace treaties, they had not, they had, France and England had a treaty with Czechoslovakia. And when Hitler started agitating in Czechoslovakia, in order to produce peace in the words of Chamberlain, 
They gave Hitler Czechoslovakia on a platter. Look at source number five. This is Neville Chamberlain after signing the Munich Agreement in September 30th, 1930 with Hitler. He comes back to England to a crowd of his followers, and he says as follows. Source number five. The settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning I had another talk with German Chancellor Erich Hitler, and here is the paper which bears his name upon it, as well as mine. I believe it is peace in our time, peace with honor. So says Neville Chamberlain. Within a year, World War II would start, which tens of millions of people would start, because, particularly because of Neville Chamberlain. Right? Particularly because of people in Neville Chamberlain who empowered Hitler to murder others in the name of peace. And it should be a lesson to all time, Munich, that when you deal with crazy dictators, right, and you're reluctant to stand up, you could even endanger many more people. And because of this, Hitler murdered millions of people. It should be a lesson by Iran as well for our own time. Legal repression against the Jews. Now, going back a few years, immediately in 1933, upon getting power, Hitler, who had already in Mein Kampf, in his book, had discussed how he was going to take care of the Jews, started anti-Semitic decrees. In 1933, immediately becoming, uh, uh, on April 1st, 1933, he, it was the first boycott of Jewish businesses, and then a series of laws were passed. First was the Law of the Restoration of the professional civil service, which knocked out all Jews out of civil service. Hindenburg actually requested that people in the army, Jews who had served in the army or the children of people in the army be excluded, which Hitler acquiesced to. He eventually, in 1937, uh, took, took, took back that uh, caveat. Um, Jewish, the physician's law, which banned Jewish doctors, the farm law forbidding Jews from owning farms or taking part in agriculture, um, um, Jews were excluded from schools and universities. The law to prevent overcrowding in schools, all Jews out. Right? From belonging to the Journalist Association, of course, Reuters, for example, which is a German, uh, was founded by a Jew. Reuters was Jewish. So they were knocked out of all of the press of Germany as well. That was all 1933. It got worse in 1935 with the Nuremberg Laws. In the Nuremberg Laws, the highlights were the marriages between Jews and the subjects of German or kindred blood are forbidden, i.e. no intermarriage. Extramarital relationships between Jews and subjects of German or kindred blood are forbidden. By the way, a Jew was defined as anyone who was Jewish going back to 1871, which is when the German kingdom came into being. When Bismarck took Prussia and made it to Germany, anyone who had Jewish blood going back to that was considered Jewish. Um, a Jews were no longer Reich citizens. A Jews cannot be a citizen of the Reich. Jews are forbidden to display the Reich's national flag or to show its national colors. In 1938, the Germans passed a law that every Jew had to add to his name Israel, and every Jewish woman had to add to her name Sarah. So thus, 100 years after German reform had declared that they were Germans of the Mosaic persuasion, Germans first, they realized that they were Jews. It reminds me of the unfortunately, unfortunately, what Chaim Balazhan once said, Chaim Balazhin, who was the, the leader of Lithuanian Jewry, student of the Lakhani, once said that when Jews don't make Kiddush, Jews don't sanctify themselves, they don't make Kiddush, 
the Gentiles can make Hatnoah. <laughs> the Gentiles can separate ourselves. When Jews don't make Kiddush, the Gentiles have that. Can you imagine Hitler banned intermarriage? <laughs> Hitler forced Jews to have Jewish names. Right? I mean, he was, can you imagine? It was Hitler who stopped intermarriage and forced. If we didn't do it ourselves, God forced Hitler to do it for us. When Hitler introduced these laws in 1935, he used a very enigmatic language. He said as follows, that if the Jewish problem cannot be solved by these laws, then it must be handed over by the law to the National Socialist Party for a final solution. For a final solution. Eventually, the expression final solution became a euphemism for the murder and extermination of the Jews. In January 1939, after already taking over Czechoslovakia and Austria, Hitler said in a public speech, if the international finance jury inside and outside Europe <coughs> should succeed once more in plunging the nations into yet another world war, the consequences will not be the Bolshevization of the earth and thereby the victory of the jury, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. January 1939. Footage of this speech was included in the Nazi propaganda movie, movie The Eternal Jew, which was shown in 1940 throughout Germany, thus preparing the Germans for the final solution. Now, when Hitler took power, Jews tried to get out. One of the first to leave, already in March 1933, was the famous philosopher Walter Benjamin, the novelist Leon Fuchtwanger went to Switzerland. Albert Einstein, who was out of the country on January 30th, 1933, when Hitler came to power, never returned to Germany. And he called events there a psychic illness of the masses. He was expelled for the, from the Kaiser Wilhelm Society and the Prussian Academy, Academy of Sciences. And Albert Einstein, who at one point was German, Germany's most famous, famous citizen, was his citizenship was rescinded. In 1938, when the Nazis took over Austria, Sigmund Freud ran to England himself. But most Jews couldn't get out. And in 1938, the Germans not only got sick of the Jews, they started pushing Jews out. And they pushed out what's called the Ostjuden. They pushed out any Jew who had not been in Germany before World War I. And these were tens of thousands of Polish Jews who had emigrated to Germany in the Weimar Republic's early days. And Hitler pushed them out, and, and Poland themselves, which were, had an anti-Semitic government at the time, sent the Jews in. So there were tens of thousands of Jews who got stuck at the Polish-German border. One of these Jews' sons was living at, in, in Paris. His name was Herschel Greenspan. And when he got a, a, a memo from one of his authors describing what was going on, he walked in to the German consulate in Paris, and open-fired uh, open at a Nazi German di diplomat, Ernest von Rath in Paris, who died two days later. When he died two days later, the Nazi party organized a mass program called the November Programs, also known as Kristallnacht in Germany. On the night of the broken glass, on November 9th, over 7,000 Jewish shops and 1,668 synagogues in Germany were damaged, most of them burned. In fact, if you read the Nazi orders that were sent out, they were supposed to burn the synagogues, 
and you could see the pictures of the firemen outside the synagogues. They were not there to put out the fires in the synagogues. They were there to make sure the fires didn't spread to the buildings next to the synagogues. Right? And, and also, as a result of Kristallnacht, the Germans imprisoned 30,000 Jews into concentration camps for weeks on end until they agreed to emigrate or give up their possessions. And then they find the Jewish community of Germany, who had already been impoverished from five years of anti-Semitic laws, one billion marks, right, which is approximately $400 million. $400 million in 1938, which would be many, many, many billions today, right, in 1938. And at this point, the Jews in Germany were desperate to get out, but most of the world was closed. The British had shut down Palestine. America was an isolationist, and as we discussed last lecture, had very strong anti-immigration laws. They, they had an Evian conference at the behest of, of FDR. Nobody took the Jews. And Hitler himself remarked that. Canada, which was one of the worst countries in accepting Jews, in the whole 19, between 1933 and 1939, Canada only accepted 5,000 Jews. Canada, the foreign minister said at the conference, when asked how many Jews will Canada take, the foreign minister said none is too many. The United States took 200,000 Jews, but when 1939, when the war started, almost the entire remnant of Jews in Germany and Austria, 300,000 Jews were on the waiting list to get into the United States of America. Almost all of those Jews died in the Holocaust. At one point, there was a resettlement plan for the Ger- by the Germans called the Madagascar Plan. This plan was actually approved by Hitler, and it was called the Territorial Final Solution. They figured they'd send the Jews to Madagascar, which you know, which was not a, which was far away from the world, and it was harder to live there. Maybe Jews would die, would, would die there. But in 1942, the Madagascar plan was abandoned, and the German Foreign Office was given the explanation that the Jews were to be sent to the east. World War II. On August the 25th, 1939, the most unbelievable thing happened. What was this unbelievable thing? Hitler which for years had been agitating against the communists, which had been slamming Stalin. And Stalin, which for years had been talking about the fascists and the capitalists of Germany, made a non-aggression treaty. On August the 25th, 1939, the last block on Hitler's attack on Poland was lifted. And that is that Hitler had been threatened by England and France, if, if Poland was their last straw. He, truthfully, it's clear that Hitler wasn't sure that that was the last straw, but he didn't want to take his chances. He wasn't ready to take on the Soviet Union at the time, and Stalin was not ready to fight Hitler. And so they made a non-aggression treaty. And here you had the two of the greatest mass murderers in history who were diametrically opposite on the political world, on the far left and the far right, making a non-aggression treaty. The remarkable thing is, if you look, there's a very famous picture, because the World Zionist Congress was going on when this happened. And there's a picture of Ben-Gurion and all of the Zionists with their hands on, the, on, the, on their heads. And you look at that picture of utter despair when they heard the news and it was released that Hitler and Stalin had signed a non-aggression treaty. And you just, that, that World Zionist picture, because they had no idea what was going to hit them yet, but they knew that it was bad news for Poland. And six days later... On September 1st, 1939, with trains going into, to, with German tanks 
with pictures that we're going in, into Poland to get the Jews. The, the pictures of tanks with, the, with that spray painted on, Germany invades Poland. And immediately, Britain and France <laughs> declare war in Germany. Poland falls in a matter of weeks. France fell on June 22, 1940, leaving England alone to fight. Chamberlain, at that point, is, uh, resigns as, uh, as, uh, as the, the head of the English Parliament. Uh, Winston Churchill takes in. The summer of 1940 is decisive that England could have fallen at that point, but Churchill rallied people. But all of continental Europe by 1941 was dominated by the Nazis. All of continental Europe by 1941 was dominated by the Nazis. Hitler made two mistakes. One is that he attacked Russia before finishing England. Number two, then on December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and Hitler declared war in America. It would take years, however, for the Russians, English, and <coughs> the Americans to defeat Hitler. And in those years, six million people were killed in the Holocaust. Now, as I just mentioned before the lecture, I mean, this just communism and the Holocaust, Nazis, I can spend lectures. There is so much to say, but really words can't describe it. And at some level, I feel I shouldn't say anything at all because whatever I say is not enough. But, you know, you can't give a, a Jewish history lecture. We can't understand ourselves who are sitting in this room today unless we have at least a basic discussion of the Holocaust. The Holocaust comes from the Greek word whole and burnt. The name the Holocaust became the popular uh, term for the genocide in the late 1970s, based on a documentary, The Holocaust. Other words for the Holocaust in the Jewish uh, vernacular is the Shoah, which is the catastrophe, or Chorban, which is the destruction. The destruction. Six million of nine million Jews in, Europe, uh, in Nazi-controlled Europe were murdered. Almost 70% of, of the Jews in that area. More than one million Jewish children were, mur were murdered. Two million Jewish women. And three million Jewish men. Professor Michael Berenbaum, who is a Holocaust expert, when he describes the Holocaust, said that Germany was a genocidal state. Every arm of the country's sophisticated bureaucracy was involved at some level in the killing process. Churches and the Interior Ministry supplied birth records showing who was Jewish. The post office delivered the deportation and denaturalization orders. The finance ministry confiscated Jewish property. German fir firms fired Jewish workers, in addition to franchise Jewish stockholders, the university refused, university refused to admit Jewish students, fired Jewish academics, government transport offices. Eventually, German pharmaceutical companies tested drugs. Bayer companies tested drugs on camp prisoners. Companies bid for contracts, bid for contracts to, to build a crematorial. Um, Detailed lists of victims were drawn up using IBM Germany. Companies' punch card machines producing meticulous records were, of the killings were also produced by IBM Germany. Um, and as the prisoners entered the death camps, they were given all their personal property, which was sold in Germany, and carefully cataloged and tagged before being sent to Germany as well. Birnbaum writes that the final solution to the Jewish question was in the eyes of the perpetrators, Germany's greatest achievement of the war. Look at source number six. This is famous German historian Werner Keller. The history of Germany will remain tainted 
for all time by the most atrocious crimes that human beings ever inflicted upon helpless fellow human beings. No one will be able to describe Germany as a land of Goethe, Bach, Kant, and Lessing. It will also and remains henceforth land of Hitler, Himmler, and the death camps. In other genocides, there were pragmatic considerations such as control of territory and resources, which were central to the genocide. The slaughter of the Jews of Europe was systematic in all areas of Nazi-occupied territory, in areas that are now 35 separate countries. Of course, it was worse in Central and Eastern Europe, which had 7 million Jews. About 5 million of those 7 million Jews in Central and Eastern Europe were, were murdered. Hundreds of thousands of other Jews in the Netherlands, France, Belgium, Yugoslavia, and Greece were murdered. And the Wannsee Protocols, when they were deciding the final solution to Jews, specifically said, and they put amongst the list of those to be slaughtered, the 330,000 Jews of England and the 4,000 Jews of Ireland, despite the fact that they were not conquered. When the Nazis came into um, Poland, the question of the treatment of the Jews became an urgent one, because although they split Poland with the Soviet Union, they now had two million more Jews in their territory. Hitler's right-hand man, Reinhard Heydrich, recommended concentrating all the Jews in ghettos in the major cities where they could be put to work for the German war industries until future measures can be accomplished more easily. Until future measures can be accomplished more easily. Eichmann, in his trial in 1961, said those future measures were already a plan for the final solution. In that area, in the general government, there were approximately 3.5 million Jews because the Germans sent their own citizens there, they, they took out citizens from Belgium, they sent there all other countries, and they put them in the ghettos. The large of the ghettos, ghettos was the Warsaw Ghetto, which had 400,000 Jews. Those 400,000 Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto were 30% of the population of Warsaw. 30% of the population was on 2.4% of the land of Warsaw. That means there were more than nine people per room in the ghetto. Nine people per room in the ghetto, not that room. Nine people per room in the ghetto, in the Warsaw. Many tens of thousands of Jews died of maltreatment, disease, starvation, exhaustion, but it still was not a program of a systematic killing. The Germans had an expression, destruction through work. Although it was clear by 1940 when the Germans wanted to assassinate, to, to exterminate the Jews, there were individuals in the Nazi party, like Goring, who felt keep the Jews alive. We need the manpower. There were one million Jews working in, Russia, in, in Poland in order till the end of the war and kill them after the war. That would soon change. As mentioned, on August 25th, 1939, six days before World War II starts, Hitler had signed a non-agreed aggression treaty with Stalin. Well, in June 1941, Hitler attacks Stalin. In Operation Barbarossa, which you read his quote before, Hitler backstabbed Stalin and invaded Russia. Now, Hitler, when he came into Russia and his troops, they steamrolled. First of all, for whatever reason, despite warning, Stalin had not prepared his Russian army. But Stalin had constantly had purges in the late 1930s as well. And he had killed many of his generals. So the Russian army literally had been lacking generals and lacking the personnel to take on the Germans. And immediately, the Russians had heavy losses, so much so 
that they were Moscow and Stalingrad by not, by, early, by late 1941, within months, was on the verge of falling. Stalin was actually in depression at that point, right? But he would be saved by General Winter in 1942, which would slow down the Germans and eventually stop their offensive. When the Germans went into Russia, they were conquering three more million Jews. But this time, they didn't put them into ghettos. They were Einstadtsgruppen, which were called task groups. And as they came in, they, they took Jews, brought them into ravines, and opened fire on them and murdered them. These Einstadtsgruppen, for example, Bobby R. in Kiev, they were meticulous in the records. German records, official records, 33,782 men, women, and children were killed in one day in Bobby Yar in Kiev. Okay. The Einsatzgruppen were not, they were not the Gestapo. They were the part of the Wehrmacht. They were part of the German armed forces. The, the German historian Jorgen Forster, he argues that don't, you can't say the Gestapo was the only members of the Holocaust. The German army was heavily involved. Hilberg, who's Raul Hilberg, who's a very well-written historian of the Holocaust, he, he writes that amongst the Einsatzgruppen, the majority of them were professionals and college-educated individuals. Other um, local citizens in Lithuania, Latvia, Western Ukraine were also deeply involved in the, in the, in the murder of the Jews from the beginning. As 1.5 million Russian Jews are being slaughtered, Himmler becomes impatient with the Polish Jews. And he tells his number two, Heydrich, to convene a conference. So in January the 20th, 1942, in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee, there is a conference to decide the final solution. And it was then and there that the Germans officially adopted the policy that they were going to exterminate every single Jew in Europe. They had a list of 11 million Jews going throughout Europe. Europe. They had 333,000 Jews in England and 4,000 in Ireland as mentioned. 1.1 million in the occupied territories of Russia and 5 million in the Soviet Union, which they had not, 5 million uh, in, uh, in other parts of the Soviet Union. They had 850,000 Jews in Hungary, 2.3 million Jews in the general government. They made a plan that they would all be transported to extermination camps where they would be killed. Death camps. Now, death camps or extermination camps are frequently, and I, even I hear people in the show, They'll, talk, they'll say Auschwitz is a concentration camp. You know, Birkenau was a death camp. There's a distinct difference between what was called extermination and death camps and concentration camps. Dachau, Bergen-Belsen were concentration camps. They were places of incarceration and forced labor for a variety of enemies of the Nazi, Nazi regime. Many of them were Jews. There were many communists there. There were homosexuals there. There were, there were Soviet POWs there. They also were not Soviet labor camps, which the Germans took many Polish and Russian citizens as well to build their war machine. In both the concentration and the Soviet labor camps, the, the attrition rate, rate was high. But the point wasn't necessarily to kill. But never before, never before in recorded history was there ever such a place of a camp specifically to murder people, right? The extermination camps were run by SS soldiers, but many of the guards were Ukrainian and or Baltic, uh, Latvian, Lithuanian auxiliaries. 
There were six specific death camps for Sedaq. Auschwitz is the most infamous, which are, where approximately two million Jews were killed. Chelmo, where 320,000 were murdered. Treblinka, almost 900,000. Sobibor, 250,000. Majdanek. I was in Majdanek. I was in several of these camps. Majdanek is in Lublin. It's in Lublin. You, if you imagine having an extermination camp in the middle of San Francisco, I, I mean, it was in Lublin. It was, it was in, in, in those days, it was like on the outskirts of the city. Today, it's in the center of the city. It's in the city. And those like where 600,000 Jews were murdered. And if cold-blooded murder of Jews was not enough, it was done with extreme and perverse cruelty. They were packed into cattle trains with standing only with no food or water on the trains. They travel a thousand miles with no food or water, no toilets, no facilities. Many of them, if you look at German records, when they got off the trains, many of them were insane or had died on the trains on the way into the death camps. When they arrived at the destination, their heads were shaved for the hair to be used for stuffing mattresses, stripped of all clothing, and they most were herded naked into the gas chambers. Look at source number seven. This is Rudolf Hesse Machshemo, who was the commandant of Auschwitz in the testimony in the Nuremberg trials. I took only a snippet of it, just to get a feel. <coughs> they were then herding naked into the gas chambers. Usually they were told these were showers or delousing chambers. And there were signs outside saying bats or sauna. They were sometimes given a small piece of soap and the, and the towel so as to avoid panic. And told to remember where they put their belongings for the same reason. When they asked for water because they were thirsty after the long journey in the cattle trains, they were told to hurry up because coffee was waiting for them in the camp and it was getting cold. Another improvement we made over Treblinka, you know, in, this, in the test of the complaint, he talks how Treblinka was not as effective in murdering. Another improvement we, we made over Treblinka was that we built our gas chambers to accommodate 2,000 people at one time. Whereas Treblinka, their 10 gas chambers only accommodated 200 people each. The way we selected our victims was as follows. We had two SS doctors on duty at Auschwitz to examine the incoming transports of prisoners as a skip. We were, not, we were required to carry out our exterminations in secrecy, but of course the foul and nauseating stench and the continuous burning of bodies permeated the entire area and all the people living in the surrounding communities knew that, that exterminations were going on at Auschwitz. And the Jews, of course, even after they were at the gas chambers, were even more debased and were in cold fillings or torn from their mouths and corpses. In some instances, Rahmanullah's son soap was made from their bodies and lampshades from their skins. Medical experiments. Another distinctive thing, and we, you know, as I said, we just talk about this like facts. I remember when I went to Auschwitz, actually, my donic was even worse. You could just see the shoes. You know, when I was in Auschwitz, my donic, you see the shoes that are there. And when you see shoes, you see big kids' shoes, you see different sizes. And you just imagine these are people. You know? you know, everyone was a soul, a different, unique person who were, who were slaughtered, exterminated, mothers and children, fathers and sons. Another distinctive feature of the Holocaust was the extensive use of human subject, subjects in medical experiments. In several of the camps, notably Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald, Ravensburg, and Sasswaschen, 
bizarre and sadistic medical experiments were done to many victims without the use, without the use of anesthetics. Some people were sewn together to see if they can make Siamese twins. Others were submerged into freezing water to see how much human endurance they could have. But the most notorious of these physicians was Dr. Joseph Mengele, who worked at Auschwitz. His experiments included placing subjects into pressure chambers, testing drugs on them, freezing them, attempting to change eye color by injecting chemicals into children's eyes, and various amputations and other brutal surgeries. He particularly tested twins. When twins came to Auschwitz, he took them all to test on the twins. With the full extent of his of his work and his evilness was never going to be known because all of his records were destroyed by the Nazis as the Allies surrounded Germany. Resistance efforts. Now, you have to imagine, when you resisted against the Nazis, the Nazis had met any resistance or any escape with really brutal reprisals. For example, on March 14, 1942, a few Jews ex- ex- escaped from a work detail in Ukraine and joined the partisans. As a reprisal, the Nazis took all of the old and sick Jews immediately and shot them on the streets of that town, and 900 more were herded into a building and burned alive. So if you know that if you escape, you're going to endanger your brother, you're going to endanger your sister, there's a strong impetus not to try to escape, not to try to resist, because you'll endanger other people. Nevertheless, in at least five camps and 20 ghettos, there were uprisings. The most famous, of course, is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. There were 500,000 Jews when the Warsaw Ghetto hit its max. And in the, when the last periods, they were started sending Jews in mass to Treblinka. So on April 19, 1943, the Nazis began their final liquidation of the ghetto. And that, at that point, they were met with armed resistance. For four weeks, the Jews um, pushed the Nazis out of the ghetto killing hundreds of Germans. But at the end of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, 13,000 Jews were killed in the uprising itself, and 60,000 more were, were deported and gassed to German, uh, uh, to, to German death camps. This uprising was followed by an uprising in Treblinka, when about 600 in- inmates uh, escaped the camp, the rest of the 900 inmates in Treblinka were murdered, and all the 600 who escaped, there's nowhere to run, Nowhere to hide. Only 40 survived the war. Likewise, in Sobibor, I think it was a famous movie, Escape from Sobibor, um, 600 Jewish prisoners attempted to escape. 300 were killed in the process. And other 300 escaped. Only 40 survived the war. Or 60 survived the war. There were about 20 to 30,000 Jewish partisans who were in the forests of Lithuania and, and White Russia. Those forests, in particular, I think there's the Bielski brothers, who were famous. In those areas, there's one part called the Jerusalem area, they were, those were ripe for hiding partisans, and they themselves were responsible for killing thousands of Germans, Nazi soldiers, and saving thousands of the Jewish brethren. There are, were escapes from the death camps, and the people who escaped tried to get out to the world, first to the Jews, because as Hess, the, the commandant of Auschwitz, the Nazis put on a ground show. They didn't want people panicking. They didn't want Jews knowing that they were killing them. If they knew Jews knew where they were going to, there would be money more rebellions. And when Jews came out, 
they tried to tell the Jews, run for your life. Get out. Don't rebel. Right? Particularly Hungarian Jews, who were the last to be hit, they had several warnings from Polish people who escaped. In February 1942, an escaped inmate of the Chalno camp, Jacob Grzanski, reached the Warsaw Ghetto. He gave a detailed uh, information about the camp to the Onik Shabbos group. His report, known as the Grzanski report, was smuggled out of the ghetto by the Polish underground and reached London in June 1942. In the meantime, in February the 1st, the United States Office of War Information made an internal decision not to release information about the extermination of the Jews because they felt that if you, that the American populace would then view World War II as not a war against Hitler, as not a war against our enemies, but as a Jewish war. That's what they claimed. By 19, October 9, 1942, British radio had broadcast news of the gas of the Jews to the Netherlands. And in December 1942, for the first time, the Western Allies released a joint declaration by, the, by their members, described how Hitler's oft-repeated intention to exterminate the Jewish people in Europe, which the Allies did nothing, because for years they did not take in any Jews, and we'll see they, they didn't do anything in response, was, was, was condemned, condemned in the strongest possible manner. Of, uh, manner. In 1942, Jan Karaski, who was a Polish non-Jewish resi- resistance fighter, reported escaped Poland and reported to the Polish, British, and U.S. governments the situation of Poland. He spoke to Anthony Eden, the British Foreign Secretary, including a detailed statement what he had personally seen in both the Warsaw and in the, De- the Belzec uh, death camp. In 1943, he met with well-known journalist Arthur Kastler, and he also then met with FDR. In the meeting with FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the questions he asked him, in the middle of the conversation, tell me about the horses in Poland. What's going on with the horses of Poland? He met with Felix Frankfurter, with, with, met with Stephen Wise, who's the reformed clergy leader in Cincinnati. All of them did nothing. They accused him of hyping up and exaggerating what was going on in Poland in order to give propaganda to the Polish government in exile. But by 1944, it became irrefutable. Irrefutable what was going on. It became widely known. As Hess said, anyone outside of Auschwitz could smell the stench. Hey, people were disappearing. Hey, it was known. And Rudolf Verbal and Alfred Wetzler, who were inmates in Auschwitz, got out of uh, Auschwitz and reached Slovakia in Hungary. And they had a 32-page report. Verbo had a photographic memory, the photographic memory, and he, had a, and he was able to tell you the sh- people who came in and they were able to reference the Slovakian trains, the Hungarian trains, that went in, and they matched perfectly. Right? And this report, uh, with the addition of two other inmates, Rosen and Morowitz, who escaped became known as the Auschwitz Protocols, for those who were here this summer that saw the, the Weissmandel show, Weissmandel was one of the most Weissmandel was one of the people responsible for getting those reports out to the world. And as Hungarian Jewry is being gassed at a rate of 10,000 Jews a day in the summer of 1944, the BBC and New York Times reported it consecutively on June 20, 15th, June 20th, July 3rd, July 6th, 1944, and the pressure from world leaders caused 
the Hungarian executions to stop saving 200,000 Jews just because it became a press rule or the world press. Literally saved 200,000 Jews. Now the New York Times, the New York Times, right? what can I say the New York Times? The, the newspaper in 2001, I forget, I forget their, their coverage of what it did to the Jews today, to Israel, but in 2001, the New York Times was forced to admit that they had purposely, purposely not reported what was going on in Europe. There was an internal decision. This was based off the work of the Harvard International Journal of Press and Politics by Laurel Left, who wrote a detailed report of the New York Times. And the editor, Max Frankel, in the 150th edition of the New York Times year edition, admitted and asked for the New York Times and sells the paper, asked forgiveness for not reporting on the Holocaust despite the knowledge that they had. Thus, the mainstream Jewry, which would rely on the New York Times, right, many of them were oblivious to what was going on in the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust was unprecedented. It was unprecedented because the, the Jews were targeted for no specific reason. And, you know, there were many people who were killed in the, in the, in the, in the greater Holocaust. There were several million um, Russian POWs and citizens, there were gypsies, 1.5 million gypsies, there were 200,000 handicapped, 5,000 to 15,000 homosexuals, 2 million ethnic Poles. But there was never a systematic plan to kill them. I, the Jews were systematic. The, the, the reason the Holocaust is called a war against the Jews, it was, although, and I'm not mitigating at all, God forbid, the fact that these people were cold-blooded, murdered, innocent people. I, I mean, the, the, the Nazis kept, kept Soviet POWs and they murdered them. I, the, but with the Jews, it was a plan. So, for example, when there were millions of Poles, two million Poles who were killed, at the end of the war, war 95, 94% of Polish Catholics were still alive. But at the end of the war, more than 93% of Polish Jews were dead because the Jews were singled out to be murdered. Right? The war was specifically, the Holocaust was specifically in the Jews. Mein Kampf was against the Jews. The Wannsee Conference was against the Jews. Look at source number eight. This is the Lucy Devereux, the war against the Jews. The final solution transcended the bounds of modern historical experience. Never before in modern history had one people made the killing of another the fulfillment of an ideology whose pursuit means were identical with ends history has, to be sure, recorded terrible massacres and destructions that one people perpetrated against another. But all, however, cruel and unjustifiable were intended to achieve an instrumental end, being means to an end and not ends in and of themselves. In other words, the elimination of the Jews were not the means to the end. It was an end in and of itself to wipe the Jews off the map of Europe. What the end was, if you ever read, I remember reading Hitler's Mein Kampf in high school, and then I read some of the books, I'm going to quote some of them now. Hitler had a plan for the Jews. Like, you read Hitler, he looked at the Jews as the conscious. He said that he believed that monotheism in the Jewish ethical version, which spreads Christianity and things like that, destroyed the natural evolution of the world. Hitler believed in the survival of the fittest. The nature is brutal right, and, and balanced. 
the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans, they were not shackled by any conscience. And that's why they were the successes that they were. But the minute you have a divinely dictated ethical system where God-given standards are applied, the weak need not fear the strong. He was heavily affected by eugenics, Hitler. Right? As Hitler saw it, the Jews had emasculated the German people and the world at large. They had given the world a conscience. Look at, uh, actually I don't have this quoted, but this is a quote from Rauschen. Hermann Rauschen, by the way, it was a German conservative revolutionary who briefly joined the Nazis and had a strong association with Hitler. Before leaving the Nazi party, defecting to the United States, he was famous for writing a book called Gesprach mit Hitler, Conversations with Hitler. This quote's from, the, from, from, from Rauschen. He's quoting Hitler. They refer to me as an uneducated barbarian. Yes, we are barbarians. We want the world to be barbarians. It is an iron title to us. We shall rejuvenate the world. The world is near its end. And the Jer- Jer- Hitler blames Christianity as a Jewish invention as well. This is the song sung by the, the Hitler Youth. And I give this as well. This is, we are the joyous Hitler Youth. We do not need any Christian virtue. Our leader is our savior. The Pope and the rabbi shall be gone. We want to be pagans once again. But to, re- to achieve this plan, Hitler said he had to get rid of the Jews. Again, a quote from Rauschenberg. The Ten Commandments have lost their validity. Conscious is a Jewish invention. It is a blemish like circumcision. The struggle for world domination is fought entirely between us, the Germans, and the Jews. Therefore, Hitler uses whole war machine to destroy the Jews. And you can't see it anywhere better than Hungary. Because when the Hungarian Jews start being taken to the Auschwitz in the summer of 1944, the, 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 the the, the 400,000 Jews who were killed between May and July until the, the press reports get out to the world, those 400,000 Jews started to be killed two weeks before Normandy and continued to be go- killed as, as the, the Allies were, 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 were going off the beaches in Normandy. Hitler took trains, took supplies to kill the Jews. As the Soviets were pressing into the Eastern Front, Hitler was worried about destroying Hungarian Judaism. It was an obsession for Hitler. So much so that his last statement, the night he committed suicide, he had one last statement, one last dictate to the Jewish people. And the statement, the dictate, ends with these words. Unbelievable. As, he, as he's about to commit suicide, his last message to the Jewish people, and to, to the German people. Above all, I enjoin the leaders of this nation and those under them, this is April 30th, 1945. Above all, I enjoin the leaders of the nation and those under them to uphold the racial laws of their full extent and to oppose mercilessly the universal poisoner of all people's international jury. Okay? The remarkable thing is that Hitler blamed the Jews for conscience, and we view ourselves as the white nations. He, when I said in the beginning that he wasn't irrational, we were supposed to be the light of the nation. He hated us for that. Right? He despised us for that. And he felt that as long as the Jews are, are around the world, you're going to have a consciousness world. Look at source number nine. This is from Hitler's Apocalypse. This is a conversation that Hitler had with the Cro- Cro- Croatian foreign minister, July 21st, 1941. Listen to what he says. 
If only one country, for whatever reason, tolerates a Jewish family in it, that family will become the germ center for fresh sedition. If one little Jewish boy survives without any Jewish education, with no synagogue and no Hebrew school, we believe in Bali Chuba, Judaism is in his soul. Even if there had never been a synagogue or Jewish school in the Old Testament, the Jewish spirit would still exist and exert its influence. It has been there from the beginning, as there is no Jew, not a single one, who does not personify it. Source number 10. The struggle for all world domination will be fought entirely between us, between Germans and Jews. All else is a facade and an illusion. Behind England stands Israel, and behind France and behind the United States, even when we have driven the Jew out of Germany, he remains our world enemy. What is the enemy of the Jew? It's that the Jew are the people of the book. They're the monarchies. They, their ideas, their essence, stands against a German pagan vision. And the war against the Jews was not only a war to kill a Jew, it was a spiritual war. Okay? At no point did the Germans would pick days of Jewish holidays right, to have their death, their, 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 to, to purge the ghettos. They, they destroyed Jewish life, yeshivas and shuls, Torah learning and muster. Wherever they could, they destroyed Judaism throughout um, uh, Eastern Europe. Listen, this is from the Gurdas Yisrael's underground newspaper, the Warsaw Ghetto. Amalek, an Edomite people who attacked the, uh, uh, Amalek is not concerned so much with the Jews as with Judaism, the Jewish outlook, the Jewish worldview, the Jewish sense of honesty, the Jewish sense of justice, the Jewish attitude towards the indigent and the deprived. All these, right, the Germans killed little kids, retarded people, anyone they didn't fit in. No. All these are diametrically opposed to Amalekism. Amalek and Haman are targeting the Jews less as a people than as a divine people. I don't have to skip a little bit, but liberation by 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 mid-1944, final solution on its course, German armies were beginning to be evicted in the Soviet Union, the Balkans, and Italy's, and the Germans start dismantling the gas chambers, the crematoria were dynamited, mass graves dug up, and the corpses were cremated. If you go to if anyone's been to Treblinka, I've been there, nothing is there. Right? You go to Sobibor, nothing's there. The two camps are still around are Auschwitz and Majdanek. And that's because they couldn't be, they, they didn't have time to, to, to get out of there before the Russians uh, came into those camps. The first camp, uh, which was um, discovered, was July 23rd, 1944, was Majdanek. Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviets in 1945. Broken wall by the Americans on April 11th. Bergen Bells on April 15th. And by, uh, and by, uh, the end of the war, all the camps had been united. Before that, the Germans took tens of thousands of Jews on death marches, and a quarter of a million Jews were murdered the last few weeks of the war. The Allies, under Eisenhower, specifically made films showing what the Nazis did. And this is a remarkable thing. Eisenhower said that one day people won't believe what happened. And yet you have today people who deny the Holocaust. Now, why would people deny the Holocaust? It's, it's an interesting thing. Our greatest enemies, be it the heads of the PLO, right? be it the Iranians, be it the neo-Nazis, deny the Holocaust. Why would they deny the obvious? This is the, the Germans documented the whole thing. The Germans documented. Why would they deny the obvious? The obvious? Well, a few reasons. First of all, its memory gives strength to the Jewish people. It gives credence to the existence of the state of Israel. 
it creates sympathy for the Jewish people, it makes heroes of the Jewish people who are now able, only able to live through such a tragedy, but to survive and flourish. Because amongst some of the deniers are, is a refusal to face the dark potential that lies within mankind and within themselves. And perhaps primarily, if you look at Eastern Europe in particular, Eastern Europe, places like Lithuania, even till today, if you deny the Holocaust, or if the Holocaust is forgotten, you don't talk about it anymore, it takes away your own complicity in it as well. Right? They don't want to talk about Lithuania because they don't want to look at their own past. The Lithuanians themselves were heavily involved in what happened. They're not interested in talking about, uh, about it. Now, liberation after the Holocaust and the camps denied the Jews, the deaths of the Jews, thousands of Jews died post-liberation from just in, in bergen Belsen itself, 13,000 Jews died in the weeks after the war, just they couldn't even handle food. They had been so deprived. And when the Jews returned to places like Poland, they were persecuted. And the, the Poles did not welcome them back. The first, the most famous massacre was in Kiel's Poland on July 4, 1946, right, where 200 Jews returned to the village and they were massacred, right? 40 of the Jews were massacred. The rest were forced to leave. The Jews of Poland, the Jews of Hungary, the Jews of Lithuania and Latvia realized that no longer were these countries going to be hospitable to them. They were forced to leave Europe. Nazism had destroyed them. And as World War II ends, the rest of Eastern European Jewry starts going to DP camps. All four of my grandparents, all four of my grandparents were Polish Holocaust survivors. All four end up in German DP camps because they couldn't go back home. And as Jews leave Poland, Hungary, Romania, Czechoslovakia, those who wanted to have any Judaism, the rest of Jews of Eastern Europe, the doors are now closed to the Soviet Union. As millions of Jews are locked in the Soviet Union with no way to get out, no way to immigrate as the war ends. Thus, Eastern European Jewry, which had been there for a thousand years, is vibrant, homes of Hasidists, homes of Musr, homes of Torah, had come to an end. No longer would Eastern Europe be a home for the Jews. European Jewry, which had been the dominant Judaism, particularly amongst the Ashkenazi Jews for a thousand years, ends with the Holocaust or the Communist Revolution in Russia. But, by World War II, and the European Jewry, a remarkable thing happened. And that is, partially or totally due to the Holocaust, three years later, there would be the foundation of the first Jewish state in the state of Israel in 1948. That will be next week's lecture, the return to the land of Israel as we come full circle. We started with the Jews being exiled in the Romans, and we'll end with the Jews coming back. And all that talk next week. Thank you. Thank you.